Welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today, we're going to be talking about the iconic recording engineer, Al Schmidt. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So, Mike, how excited are you that today we're going to be talking and playing the interview of Al Schmidt? I am so excited. Al is a hero amongst heroes, and it's so wonderful to see uh, Al coming to the NAM show and being participant in the, the Tech Awards, uh, for which he won a uh, Lifetime Hall of Fame Award for the Tech back in 1997. Um, always there supporting, just such a great guy. He's a mentor to many engineers and has had a absolutely stunning career as a recording engineer. In fact, did you know that he was the first person um, recording engineer ever to have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? We did know that. I mm-hmm. did actually know that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Tried, to, tried to stump us, but yeah. no, no, because we Googled it. Yeah. Last what week. year was that? It was after, it was in the... <laughs> At some point between I the say, first star going in and this last <laughs> one that was installed. Very, very good. I'm going to guess 2010. You would only be off by four years. 14. Very good. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Al is such a great guy. Um, for those of you who are friends with him, uh, you know, I don't have to tell you, he's a very giving and generous person who really looks for opportunities to help and encourage people, especially young engineers. So it's really a kind of an opportunity for us to have recorded this uh, interview and help um establish and prolong his great legacy in the music industry. So today we're going to be focusing on the interview that he uh, gave us during the NAMM show in 2011. And I, uh, I guess the first thing we're going to start with is uh, as a kid growing up. Well, Al, thank you so much for taking some time. I really appreciate it. This is my pleasure. I always enjoy doing these. One of the things that I've always been interested in is the passion that people have for music. And I wonder for you, did you have a lot of music in your home when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, yeah. I had a tremendous amount of music uh, in my home. Uh, we had a phonograph, and my father worked for uh, Majestic Records, uh, a pressing plant. So he was always bringing home the new, all the new stuff to listen to. And then my uncle was one of the more famous recording engineers of his time. He had worked for Brunswick Records for years and uh, then started his own studio. So as a kid, I'd go over to the studio almost every weekend and spend this weekend at, with him and at the studio. and. I got to meet everybody, you know, from Bing Crosby, the Andrew Sisters, Kate Smith, uh, 
Oh my God, it was just uh, unbelievable. Uh, Art Tatum would sit at the piano uh, and come down and rehearse, you know, when the studio wasn't being used, and I'd be there and he'd put me next to him and take my little hand and show me little boogie woogie licks. And yeah, so, yeah, so my life has it's been music my whole life. That's incredible. Yeah, I was, I'm blessed. Now, what did your dad do with uh, Brunswick? My, my dad was a supervisor of the night shift at the uh, Majestic printing, printing pl plant where they pressed the records. Oh. So, so I guess my uncle got him the job or whatever, but uh, that's what he did. And uh, so we always had records at home. And then we had a little wind-up phonograph portable that I could take with me. And I would take it out and, and we would, uh, I'd bring my records uh, out and we'd play it and a bunch of us would sit around and listen to music and people would get up and dance and stuff. So it was kind of, uh, yeah, it was great. Then I started buying 78s. I started working uh, part-time, you know, at a grocery store uh, when I was like 10. Uh, setting up stuff on shelves and I made my extra money so I could go buy my records and uh, I, first record I ever bought was a Jimmy Lunsford big band record so I was a real strange kid when it came to music you know I was a real bebop at, at an early age <laughs> that's really neat yeah did yeah. you play a musical instrument? I played drums but I but I realized you know in high school that uh, I wasn't that good, you know. There were other kids that uh, played drums who were much better than I was, and I just didn't think I could ever make a career out of playing drums. Mm. And I always loved the fact that my uncle was a famous engineer, and uh, you know, I was wanting to do what he did. So, so that was it was natural that when I, I went into service. I was in the Navy uh, for a few years, and uh, when I came out, he got me a job at a studio, and I went to work there, and uh, my mentor there was uh, Tommy Dowd. So, you know, another blessing from heaven, you know? And I spent eight years with Tommy. So, yeah, it was, it was a great experience for me, and I was like Tommy's kid brother, you know? And, I jumped into his back pocket and just did everything he did. And you know, he bought me a notebook that showed me how to keep diagrams of all the setups. And we became very close. And uh, it was great. He was a wonderful guy. And, and between my uncle teaching me when I was nine and ten, uh, in, into my early teens, and and Tommy uh, being a you know a mentor. Uh, yeah, I had the best of everything. So Al is going to be talking to us next about what uh, it was like working at Apex Studios. And Dan, do you have any background information on that Well, location? you know, late 1950s, um, Al started working in the recording studios in Los Angeles. Uh, he was over at Radio Recorders in Santa Monica. Um, and then Apex Studios and continued to uh, work in these smaller studios but all along gaining a reputation and a following, in, including Henry Mancini, who really took a liking to Al's talents, and the, uh, the jazz singer Rosemary Clooney, uh, both playing a significant part in his early part of his career. What was that studio like? Well, the one I worked at um, it was called Apex Recording Studios, and it was on 57th Street in Manhattan by the, in the Steinway building. Oh. 
and uh, it was great. We, you know, it was a studio where we did all the prestige records, all Atlantic's records before they had their studio. And we did Prestige, Atlantic, National Records, uh, um, World Pacific Jazz, you know, all of, and, and so all the guys that were my idols when I was a kid growing up would come by the studio. Everybody dressed when we made records in those days. I always had to wear a shirt and tie and a sport jacket. So uh, that was the big thing at East Coast and, and a lot of the maintenance people wore white coats, you know. So uh, it was it was great, and this guy Fred Herbert was a German engineer, and he was very proper, and and but he knew what he was doing, you know. He he had learned over in Germany about tape machines and so forth, and, mm. and uh, cutting on discs, which is what we cut on when I first got there. We didn't even have a tape machine. We had a little tape machine called a brush sound mirror. And it was a little small little machine. But most everything we did, we did on transcription discs. And then we would transfer it down to, you know, 10 or 12 inch 78. Uh, it was an interesting experience because, you know, I, I watched my uncle record uh, when I was 10, maybe 11 years old, he'd have a band in the studio and he'd have one mic and, and he would move everybody around and when the guy came, the saxophone guy to play a solo, he'd get up and walk up toward the mic and play and then sit down. And I remember they made uh, everybody take their shoes off because you could hear the tapping, you know, with the shoes. It's interesting. And my uncle told me, and, and it was something that, that stuck with me all my life. Amazing. He said, when you're in here, you, you, this is like a Swiss watch. This equipment is so delicate and so balanced and, and you have to take really good care of it. If you take good care of the equipment, it'll take good care of you, you know? So it's something that really stuck with me all my life and I've been a stickler for making sure that I take good care of my gear and, and uh, the gear I'm working on. And I, it upsets me quite a bit when I see people, you know, abusing it and mm. abusing microphones or things. So next up, we're going to hear from Al uh, talking about a interesting topic, um, pretty much the differences in what a recording en engineer did in the early days versus what a recording engineer does now. So what did you understand a recording engineer's job in those early days? And, and has that changed at all after you started experiencing it? Well, it's changed quite a bit now, the way it is today and the way it was back then. But back then, we did. there was no assistant. It was an engineer. Uh, um, that was it. You'd set up and recorded, and um, everything was done at one time. There was no overdubs, and there were no isolation booths. You know, we had some gobos that you could put up to help isolation a little. Um, so, yeah, it was quite different, and today, you know, um, it's layered, you know, there's so much layering going on. So the chances of you hearing how the record's going to be when you first hear it is minimal mm -hmm. because there's so much going to go on it as, as it go through the process, guitar parts or whatever, background vocals, so forth. 
back then, everything was done at one time. So what you heard was what you got. At one point, I was doing a lot of stuff with a, a guy by the name of Bobby Shad, who had a label called Sitting In. And it was a lot of uh, blues and that kind of stuff that we did, and uh, Lightning Hopkins and those kind of people. One mm. uh, only uh, Harris, you know, a bunch of those. But we would do a record, and we do four songs, and we we on the transcription we transfer it to a '78 acetate, and then we'd get in the car, he and I, Bobby Shad, and drive up to Harlem to the radio station up there, and there were famous disc jockeys up there, Willie and Ray, and they would put the record on as we were driving in the car back to the studio, we could tune into their station and hear the record we just did to see if we liked it or, or however, it was, you know, how it sounded on the air and so forth. <laughs> you can't do that today. That doesn't happen anymore, you know. And in those days, uh, you know, you did four songs in three hours and that was it, they were done. So a whole album, you know, was maybe 12 hours, 10, 12 hours to do a whole album. You know, now sometimes it takes you 10, 12 hours to do one side, you know, one song. So it was a lot different. I can remember doing an album with uh, Ray Charles and Betty Carter, which is one of my favorite albums I've done. and. Uh, I think we did the whole album in seven and a half hours. We did two sessions of three and a half hours each. Did six songs and six songs in three and a half hours. And that was it, all live. And big orchestra, strings, brass, you know, the works. Huh. So it's great, you know. The, there was a lot more tension back then because the equipment had to work, everything had to be right. Um, all the musicians were there for a certain period of time, the vocalist or whatever. So it all had to be together. You didn't have much room for error. Mm. So it was a great way to learn. Yeah. Did any hits come out of that album? Oh, uh, the Ray Charles album? Well, it's, it's good. Yeah, they did the, probably the most famous version of Baby It's Cold Outside. Yeah. Uh, um, and then I did a Ray Charles um, Country and Western Volume 2, and that, that had a few uh, hits yeah. out of it, too. So, yeah, a lot of hits were made, uh, you know, one at a time. I did one, uh, God, when I first got into recording by myself after I was there for about four or five months, um, I did one uh, for Atlantic with the Clovers called Don't You Know I Love You So. Uh, that, that came out to be a big hit. It was great. So as we continue with our interview from 2011 with uh, the great recording engineer Al Schmidt, I think it'd be a great time to just talk a little bit about some of the amazing things that Al has accomplished during his career. He's going to tell us about his first recordings uh, in the Los Angeles area. And just please keep in mind that uh, to date, Al has won 22 Grammy Awards and in addition to that, he was also given a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award and has uh, worked on either produced or engineered uh, over 150 albums that have either gone gold or platinum. So the guy knows his stuff. And it's really neat to hear his own words as how his career got started. So let's hear about his first recording. My first recording session 
this is an interesting story. I think it might this might be worthwhile. I, uh, I I got to the point after about three months of that I could go in the studio on Saturday and do what we call these little demo records. It would be like piano and voice if a guy wrote a song, and we do it on a. 78 disc and give it to him and I think we charge him 15 bucks or something and uh, and then so I was able to be to do that and on this one Saturday I went in I'd be there all by myself and uh, I did uh, you know piano and voice and there was a cantor who came in and did some cantering and we gave him that the record and everything else and around two o'clock I had my last appointment it was Mercer so I'm sitting around waiting for Mr. Mercer and the elevator doors open up and all these musicians start coming out carrying instruments. So they said, where's the studio? And I said, well, what do you mean? We're here for a session. I said, oh no, there's some mistake. No, this is for Mercer Records. Duke Ellington's son, Mercer Records. I said, boy, it must be a mistake. I said, I, you know, they don't, they didn't have that down at all. I showed them the studio, and guys were going in. And so I tried to call my boss on the phone. I couldn't reach him. I tried to call Tommy on the phone. I couldn't reach him. So I, I had my notebook that Tommy had given me, you know, with all my diagrams in it. So when I realized it was the Duke Ellington big band. I, I got my book and I got a big band setup that Tommy had done and I went and I set up, got the microphones, put the microphones, you know, where he had them and, on, and so forth. And, and that was my first record date. And I was sitting there and Duke Ellington was sitting next to me and he couldn't play piano because uh, of, he, he was signed to Columbia. But this was for his son's label. Uh, Leonard Feather and his son had this record label and Billy Strayhorn played piano. So it was that great Ellington band, you know, with all those great players. And I kept saying to, to Mr. Ellington, I, I said, I'm just not qualified to do this. I said, this has been a big mistake on me. And he kept patting me on the leg. He said, don't worry, son, we're going to get through this. <laughs> so we did. We got through it. I did four songs and uh, got through it. And uh, I don't think it was the worst record I've ever done. It certainly was far from the best, but... Uh, <laughs> It was, it was an interesting way to start. And I think if I'd known the night before that I was going to have to record the Duke Ellington band, I think I would have called in sick. <laughs> That's how, how nervous I would have been. But the fact that it came on me so fast, I didn't have time to fall apart. You know, I just had to get to do things. And, uh, and before I knew it, it was over. And it was unbelievable. And they, they were all pat me and this yeah, yeah, great work, kid, you know, and I was I was still a teenager. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great. That is neat. That's a great story. Well uh, you've worked with so many wonderful musicians. How how is that is that a, a, a an extra part of your satisfaction of uh, working in that business? I think, yeah, I think the satisfaction of working with all those great musicians is, is a, uh, an added bonus to, to the job. And then to become friends with so many of them and close friends, and uh, uh, that was even more icing on the cake, so to speak. Uh, yeah, you know, 
I tell people I lie to my wife every day when I tell her I'm going to work, you know. <laughs> I, I, I love what I do. I, I can't, I talk to all my kids and everything else. I said, I don't care what you do in life. Just make sure it's something you really love to do. And if you do, you'll probably never work a day in your life and be very happy. So uh, that's how I feel. I've, I've been blessed to be able to do what I do and work with all the great artists and, you know, from Sam Cooke to George Benson to Natalie Cole to Frank Sinatra to uh, Hank Mancini. Uh, all the great old jazz, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, you know, Charlie Parker I got to work with. Uh, wow. Yeah, uh, Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker. I, it's just on and on and on. It's just, it, it's amazing. I, you know, I, I'll have to one day try to sit down and write something about everybody I've ever worked with. If I can remember them all, there's so many of them. That's amazing. Billy yeah. Eckstein, Billy May, uh, yeah. Did you work with Ella? I no, you know, I worked on one session with Ella, but when I first came to California, I assisted the engineer. Okay. Lowell Frank, his name was, he was a great engineer. And I assisted him on that one date. I didn't do much assisting, I usually was the engineer, but on this date, I, I was, and she, she sang, and it was a big band, and uh, yeah, it was great. She was wonderful. Wow, what a singer. What a voice. So you heard Al there mentioning uh, his first recording session, as well as some of the big names he's gotten to work with, specifically on the tail end there, uh, the great Ella Fitzgerald, who we have one of us as a kind of a super fan. <laughs> and it's not me. It's not me. <laughs> it might be the person who named his daughter Ella. I just, I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> And how fantastic. I mean, being a huge fan of Ella and sitting toe-to-toe with the guy who worked with her on some of her most uh, iconic recordings is really neat. I'm also a little bit of an Elvis fan and uh, not really talked about too much in this interview, but uh, Al also worked on Elvis's first recordings after he came back out of the Army in 1960, uh, several recordings of which became part of the Elvis G.I. Blues album in 1960. Um, but at that t same time, he was working with a lot of iconic folks that um, really helped shape his career, uh, one of which is uh, a gentleman who was a, a close friend, and we're going to hear him talking about him now. That's it, the great singer Sam Cooke. Sam recorded a couple of iconic uh, songs with Al, and Al engineered Bring It On Home To Me, uh, Cupid, which was a big million seller for Sam, as well as possibly his best known tune, uh, Another Saturday Night. Well, I wanted to make sure we talked about one of my all-time favorites, and that's Sam Cooke. And I've just learned that he's one of yours, too. Sam is one of my all-time favorites. I had dinner with him the night he was killed. Uh, we had... Uh, what had happened, I was Sam's engineer. And uh, Hugo and Luigi were the producers at RCA, and I was a, the engineer at RCA, and I did all the Sam and all the Saturday Night and Cupid and all those records. And uh, so Sam and I became friends, and, and Hugo and Luigi, I got a promotion to the A&R department at RCA, I became a producer. And uh, Hugo and Luigi left RCA to start uh, Avco Records, another label. 
And so they were looking for somebody to produce Sam, and Sam said he wanted me, since we, I, I knew his style and we got along so well and all. So I started producing his records. I did the live album at the Copa. Uh, I did the Shake and a, a bunch of things. So we were, um, and he was one of my all-time favorites. He was, he had a great personality. He was spiritually an unbelievable human being. Uh, and in the studio, there was nobody like him. I mean, he just, his ears, and, and he wrote all those songs, and it's just wonderful. And his voice, it was just a gorgeous voice. And you put the mic up, and it just sounded beautiful. And, and uh, so, we had done the, the Copa record and a, a few other things, put some stuff together, and finally we were, we were meeting at Martoni's and having dinner, and we were talking about the next album we were going to do. We were going to do a blues album. And uh, so we had this great dinner, and, and uh, then I left. I had to go see another act, and I told Sam that I would meet him at another club uh, that after I saw the act, I was going to a club called PJ's. And he said, great, I'll see you there. And, and that was it. And he went up to the bar, and I left and went to see uh, this act, a guy by the name of Stan Worth, at a little club called the African Queen. And then I went over to PJ's. And uh, he didn't show up, and it was about 1.30, and I left. I went home. Well, evidently, he got to the club about quarter of two with this girl that he had picked up at the restaurant after we had dinner, and uh, and he wouldn't let him in. It was late, they were gonna close it too, and they said he was been drinking and they didn't want him in. So he left. Anyway, um, I got a call at five o'clock in the morning from one of my dear friends, Lester Sill, who was the, uh, he was the head of Cold Gems. And he called me, he said, Al, uh, Sam's been shot. And I said, oh my God, uh, you know, when I started to get up, I said, you know, what hospital is he in? You know, I'll go. he said, no, no, he's dead. I said, oh my God, it just broke my heart. And from that moment on, then the phone started ringing and I was getting calls from London and uh, uh, from all the RCA people and so forth, wanting to know what happened as if, you know, I was with him when he got, I said, I don't know what happened. My wife at that time was a reporter for a newspaper and uh, she was able to get the police reports. So she was able to delve into exactly what happened or what they had in the police reports. So, you know, it's just one of those things, you know. Mistake of judgment. Mm -hmm. It was a horrible thing. Yeah, it was, because he was, he was just in his prime, mm -hmm. you know. Just in his prime, he was a handsome guy, and he, he was just an incredible dresser. He just everything about him was personable. Mm. He wrote. He was a good businessman. He he had everything. I mean, it was just he would have been the next Nat Cole uh, at that time. So the great great part of that is that I had the uh, experience of being with him and spending a lot of time with him and becoming very close friends. And, uh, you know, the sadness of the loss, of course, is uh, something I, you know, you never forget those things. But, but at least uh, 
there's CDs out and, uh, right. you know, people, uh, I still get people all the time tell me Sam was their favorite artist, so. I always thought it was ironic that one of his last recordings was Bring It On Home. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel that too? Uh, not really. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't think about that. Bring It On Home was not one of his last recordings. It was done a little earlier. Oh, okay. So we did, I don't know, maybe two albums, uh, a couple things after that. Okay. So, uh, but, but what a great song, what a great recording, and uh, the best. yeah, 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 just an amazing, amazing guy. So, and the Cobra album, I think, you know, he he did the show at the Cobra, and all the mob guys were there, and uh, and uh, he killed it. You know, he had worked there once before, maybe five years before, and stiffed, and. So he this time worked up the show, and I was there with him. And we they worked up the show, and we went up to the Catskills, and did the show up there one time just to iron out any kinks, and then came down to the Copa, and did the Copa, and it was an amazing success. I mean, the people were tamping their feet and clapping and singing along, and. Uh, you know, on Friday night, the Mafia guys would be there with their girlfriends, and on Saturday night, they'd be there with their wives, you know. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was really funny. That's the, boy, you've had some amazing experiences. Yeah, yeah, I've been, I've been really lucky and blessed. It's always super interesting to hear people reflect on working with artists because we tend to know the artist perspective of the story, but hearing from someone else what they were like and who had a close relationship is always interesting. So I'm glad that Dan was able to capture that, uh, Al Schmidt's uh, stories of Sam Cooke and how close they were. We're going to move on because you can't really have any podcasts listening to a recording engineer without talking about gear. So I know Dan wanted to mention some stuff about uh, Al's uh, role as a producer. Right. So it's really interesting is that, he, you know, he took advantage of being there at that time. Um, and as his career was developing as an engineer and being around all of these artists, some of them like Sam Cooke becoming personal friends, he had an opportunity to uh, produce some albums. And he started that in the mid-1960s and worked with people like Jackson Brown, Neil Young, Paul McCartney, uh, Ray Charles, Quincy Jones and Steely Dan, among others. So uh, uh, that's a part of his uh, career, as Elizabeth was alluding to earlier. Talk about behind the scenes. This guy is really behind the scenes and sort of the ultimate behind the scenes kind of guy. Most people think of him as an engineer and had no idea that he is uh, such a prolific producer as well. So we're going to continue on with our 2011 interview with Al Schmidt. And uh, here he is talking about recording gear. One of the things that I wanted to cover with you, Al, is just some of your thoughts about the change in gear and, and equipment and, and some of the landmark innovations that you um, took part in and, and uh, witnessed during the years. What would you say are some of the top innovations as far as recording? Well, you know, certainly one of the top things was uh, uh, Les Paul coming up with the multi-tape machine, you know, the, the uh, multi-track tape machine. I mean, when we heard, and I've known Les all my life. I, I mean, I first met him when I was nine years old, Les. Mm -hmm. He was like an uncle to me. 
and because uh, he and my uncle worked together on a lot of stuff, they designed gear and stuff together, mm. and uh, so all my life I would run into him, and you know, he was just. But when we first heard, you know, how high the moon, nobody could believe it. You know, how did he do that? Holy smokes. You know, it was great. And then Tommy Dowd got a multi-track tape machine for Atlantic, and he started doing a bunch of stuff like that. But I think that innovation was the start of, uh, of it all. And then, you know, it was, we had mono and two-track machines, then three-track, then four-track, and then eight-track. And then from eight-track, we went to 16-track, and I can remember a bunch of us sitting around saying, what the hell are we gonna do with 16 tracks? <laughs> you know, and now I get stuff that I'm mixing. Sometimes they have a hundred tracks. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So, and yet, you know, back then we learned that you know we did all the drums were done on one track or maybe two. Uh, so, you know, once we had the 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 option of Pro Tools and to be able to then start moving things around and spreading things out, then everything got its own track, and it just takes longer to make records because you've got the mixing, it's more expensive, you know. Uh, and it doesn't sound any better than what the records were when we were doing things direct to mono and two track. Mm. Uh, so, I don't know, but you know, I think the multi-track tape machine was probably one of the best things. Of course, Telefunking coming up with the great tube microphones. Uh, that was really, uh, you know, Germany, they had tape machines. When, at the end of the war, the Americans who went into these places, radio stations, they didn't know what these things were. They were tape machines. And, and the tape was metal tape. Mm. Yeah, it was, so they were bringing these things back and that's where the development started coming, you know. Germans had, you know, they had that stuff down, microphones and that. Um, so I don't know, and then Pro Tools, of course, is a major thing at this point uh, because uh, a lot of people work, I'll tell you that. But you can, you know, back when we were punching in on, on tapes and all, and you punched in, you had to be right on and punch in and punch out at the right time. With Pro Tools, if you miss the punch, it doesn't make any difference. You could just fix it. So it's so, so easy to do. But it just costs more to do now, and uh, I think budgets have gone through the roof. I know I did Henry Mancini albums, and you know, I mean the whole album, $10,000 maybe, you know. Now they're doing albums for $250,000 and even more. You know, some of the Streisand albums cost more than that. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, I, it, I, I seem to be bouncing back and forth. Are you going to be able to? Oh, do, yeah. Yeah, you okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let me know. You know, rein me in if I Yeah, get, no, you know. this is very interesting. Well, you've witnessed some very impressive things. Did you ever take part in designing any gear or changing anything? No, no, I don't think I had. I was bright enough to uh, <laughs> to do that. I would watch guys do it and watch my uncle uh, come up with stuff. And uh, when I when I was young, you know, vacuum tubing on on the the uh, 
the acetate, when they were cutting the acetates before the vacuum tube being, you know, suction came to take the chip away, they had a brush, uh, a mink brush on the, that would just ride on the acetate. And then, then you had to take the chip off and put it in the can. So when they got the, able to suck it off, suction wise, that was a big thing. Uh, made for cleaner records too. But I never did, no, I never got into uh, designing anything. What uh, was your uncle's name? Harry Smith. Harry Smith. Yeah, he changed his name because I guess after the First World War or something, uh, there was a big anti-German sentiment, uh, sentiment uh, in, in, in New York or whatever, and so he changed it to, his name was Harold Schmidt, and he changes to Harry Smith, mm. and it was Harry Smith recording. He was the engineer who did the first uh, Sing 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 record out of uh, at Carnegie Hall. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. He he was a big time guy. That was the jazz concert. Yeah, 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 Trupo? yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he was quite a guy. Yeah. What it sounds like. Yeah, I learned a lot from him. You know, just hanging out. The great thing was, you know. We were really poor, my, my, my father and my mother, and, and I had a little younger sister and two, two younger brothers. And, and he was very well off. He had a brand new car, you know, a convertible and that. And he had this great apartment on, uh, uh, in Manhattan. Oh, I can't think of the name of the street now, but it was, it was great. So I would go over there on, on a Friday after school. I would go by myself get on the subway, go over and get off, and and go to the studio. And then I would stay with him Friday night and Saturday. And then Sunday, uh, I would come home. But every time I would left, I think my father in those days, this before he, he went to work for uh, Majestic, he was working at a printing company and he was making $17.50 a week. That was, and trying to raise four kids and, uh, and, and two adults. And uh, so my uncle, every time I left, would give me a $20 bill, and which when I went home, I would give to my mother. And so it kind of doubled our income. And he would give it to me that way because he, he tried to offer money to my father. My father was too proud to take it. So no, no, but so he'd give it to me and I'd give it to my mother and my mother would use it for food and whatever. So uh, it was interesting, but he took me to, uh, I saw, a, I was a big boxing fan as a kid and I always wanted to be a boxer. I think that was my first love. And uh, he would take me to all the main fights at Madison Square Garden. And I saw Sugar Ray Leonard, fight, I mean Sugar Ray Robinson fight uh, uh, when I was a kid. And then we'd go after the fights, we'd go out to great restaurants and uh, you know, he. He just showed me so much on how to live and, and how, you know, I was always helping with the plates and he would say, no, no, that's this man's job. You don't want to take his job away and things like that, you know, and how to use your napkin. And so, yeah, it was a great experience. And then, of course, then he got my father this job and, uh, and, and uh, my father started making pr fairly good money then and then we were able to move. Uh, to a better apartment, and so, you know, so our whole scale of, of uh, existence kind of went up 
So, but when we were down and there was not much going on, he gave me that twenty bucks, and I'll never forget that. It was, it was more money than my father made working five and a half days a week. You know. So. Sounds like quite a guy. He was quite a guy. He was my father's brother. He was uh, also he never had any children, so I was like a, a second, uh, you know, a child. He was like a second dad to me actually, and uh, he was also my godfather, which was kind of nice also. Yeah. Very neat. Yeah. What was his thoughts when you got into the business? Was he proud of that? He was very proud of me. Yeah, very very proud of what. And God, if he. If he was around today, so what I've done in my life and in the record business, I'm sure the buttons would pop from his shirt, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've been really, you know, blessed. Um, you know, I was able to work with a lot of great people, a lot of great artists, and, and uh, you know, I've won so many Grammys, and, you know, it's just, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, he'd be very proud. I know that Les, Les Paul was very proud of me too. Mm. He he was he told me quite often I'd run into him at Capitol when uh, I'd be doing a date there and he'd stop by there and uh, he'd come down to see me. We'd talk and he's he always messed up my hair. He, even when I was a little kid, he just loved to mess up my hair and then he had this pixie little smile, you know. And I hated it, you know. You know, little kids hate to get their hair messed up and all. And he would do it to me as I got older. <laughs> <laughs> he was quite a guy. Okay, so that was uh, Al Schmidt from the NAM Oral History interview, and a little bit of uh, work there with uh, Les Paul, which of course is uh, ironic because uh, Les Paul was very important in the development of some of the awards of the Tech Award. And Al, of course, is uh, very instrumental in that award as well. In fact, in just a few minutes, we're going to hear Al's views on the Tech Award. Uh, but before then, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the folks that uh, Al worked on later in his career. Um, of course, being at Capitol for so many years, Al had the opportunity to work with Frank Sinatra. Um, we didn't talk about it too much in his interview. I think he was actually kind of humble about that because... Frank was considered a chairman of the board, and in, in Al's era, for sure, he was the king of the king. And to have the opportunity to work with Sinatra was really a feather in his cap. Uh, he worked on uh, two albums with uh, Frank. Uh, in 1993, Frank put together the um, duets album that was a huge hit during the holiday that year, and it uh, required a follow-up the following year, uh, Duets too and Al worked on both of those. He also worked closely with Michael Jackson, Tony Bennett, Thelonious Muck, and uh, later, uh, around 2014, also with, uh, with Bob Dylan. So there's a lot of content to his career that wasn't covered in this interview, but what he does talk about, let's hear uh, some great stuff from Nat King Cole and the Natalie Cole album of Unforgettable, as well as uh, Neil Young. Well, you worked on so many projects, I just want to apologize for not being able to cover all of them because there are so many great ones. Yeah. You know, I mean, a few that jump out at me uh, was the work that you did with Neil Young. Oh, yeah, on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's some funny stories there. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, we did that at Sunset Sound. And I had the studio set up as uh, like a living room with lamps, you know, and 
had the lamps and everybody was sitting on couches and all it was all acoustic. And uh, the one guitar player who played a lot of the solos, every time we could hardly see in there, you know. And every time it would come time to play a solo, he'd push the mic out of the way. <laughs> and I'd have to run out there and say, no, you got to kill. And we'd have to start over again. And the funny thing about that is that people would come by all the time and want to hear what we were doing, record company people and that. So we had to keep taking the tape off and putting the multi-track tape on. So we made rough mixes, just quick rough mixes onto a two-track. No echo on them or anything else. Neil fell in love with those rough mixes, and that's what's on the album. Okay. Yeah, he wouldn't. I, I, I told him I would pay for it myself. Please let me remix the stuff and or mix it. And uh, no, no, I like this. I like this. So every time Neil is around uh, anybody and my name comes up, he says, "Does Al still want to remix those records?" <laughs> <laughs> but I love Neil. Neil was great. That was a great experience. I had a great experience. You know, um, Natalie Cole doing Unforgettable. That was another. Unbelievable. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that too. That must have been an extraordinary event. Yeah, it was great. It was really extraordinary because to hear it go down, it was amazing. It was not that difficult a thing to do. You know, everybody says, God, how did you do that? And, uh, you know, and then of course we all embellish, oh my God, it was so hard and we sweat. You know, <laughs> but it was actually wasn't that tough. It, what what happened was the track was a Nat's track was a three track, and he was alone on the center track, but he was in the room with the musicians, so there was some leakage then. So we we filtered out, cut out the leakage in between mm. when when he had spacings, and we filtered out as much of the uh, the leakage as we could. Then in spots where we couldn't get it out, it was there. Johnny Mandel, who did the arrangement, in those spots did a similar thing to cover up those leakage parts. And then we had we had the track, and the, the drummer whose name was Sal 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 Gubin, very great drummer with a fantastic sense of humor, great guy. And so he did a click, uh, a live click to it, you know, with the drums. And then we played the, the the track back to we had the orchestra out there and Natalie in the booth, and we had Nat sing all the way and Natalie sing all the way, so it was like a all the way duet. Equal. Then uh, David Foster, who produced it, then figured Natalie will sing here and we take Nat out, and Nat will sing here, we take Natalie out, and then at the end we. We sampled um, Nat so that when Natalie sang a line and we wanted to have Nat do an answer, you know, since it wasn't done that way on tape, then we, we sampled him and then flew it in that way. And then we mixed it. And it, I mean, it just wasn't that hard to do, you know, it was not earth shattering. and. Uh, but it was great, and it won a lot of Grammys uh, for people, and uh, you know, it certainly opened a whole new career for Natalie. And uh, and I remember I had it 
I had the uh, a, a, um, a cassette of it. We had cassettes in those days, so I had a rough cassette of the rough, and I flew over to Hawaii because I was recording George Benson in his studio in on on Maui. And when I got over there, I said, George, you got to hear this, and I played it. And George could imitate Nat to a T. I mean, he was amazing. But I put it on and played it, and his eyes got this big, and his mouth opened up. How did you do that? He said, is that really Nat? <laughs> I said, yeah, it's really him. You know, it's not somebody making believe it's him. He said, oh my God, you know, he couldn't believe it. He said, it's this man. Well, of course, when it came out, it just exploded, you know. Everybody thought, how, how could this be done? Although it was done once before, uh, that same type thing it was done, um, trying to think of who it was, it was a, a Nashville uh, father and son mm. act. They did it. The father had passed away and the son did it. And, and they were able to do the same thing we did with Unforgettable, except we had the bigger hit. So we got all the notoriety. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, 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 it was great. It was great. So, And then I did it you know, a few more times with, uh, with Natalie and Nat. And then I did a whole album with, um, <laughs> with Dean Martin of duets where we filtered everything out and then did duets with uh, everybody with Dean. And uh, yeah. Steve Jenowick, who was my assistant all the time, we always joke we're going to get cards made up, you know. Al Schmidt, engineer to the dead. Because <laughs> we could bring them back alive. We kept, that was our motto, was nobody's dead anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. Well, tell me a little bit about the uh, Tech Awards. I know that you've um, you've certainly been honored by them. And yeah, yeah, I'm in the Hall of Fame there, and uh, that's a great, great thing. Uh, a funny story that uh, when I uh, when I was awarded the Tech Award, uh, it was in New York, and my wife and uh, two of my boys were with me, and we were sitting at the table with uh, with Les. So Les and I were joking around. I said, Les, I want to introduce you to my wife. This is my wife, Lisa. And he looked at Lisa and said, why, you're pretty. He said, you're much prettier than a woman he was with last night. <laughs> I had warned my wife in front about him. You know, I said, this guy's a little pixie and he'll do it. So she said, well, I sure hope so. <laughs> but it was, it was funny. I'm going to tell that tonight. I think at the tech, tell that little story about him and yeah. just a little bit of his personality. He will be in our hearts forever. This guy, Les Paul, he was a wonderful, wonderful guy, and and I'm so proud of the fact that the Tech Awards have the award named for him. That's great. It's just a wonderful thing. Um, yeah, you know, I, I have now, I have 20 Grammys, and uh, I have 17 regular Grammys, and then I have two Latin Grammys, and then I have a Lifetime Achievement from the Grammys also, a trustee Lifetime Achievement Award. So, and then to be honored in the Tech Hall of Fame, you know, it's just, you know, sometimes I kind of, is that really you up there doing that? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, you know, basically I'm a pretty humble guy and I, I you know, I don't, not kind of a, I don't like to say I did this, I did that, I did this, you know, kind of thing. So when I look back at it all, I'm, I'm amazed at how all these things happened and came about. It's just great. Mm. I'll tell you a story. When I got my first Grammy, I got my first Grammy with, uh, on Henry Mancini, uh, Atari, uh, with Baby Elephant Walk and all those records. Huh? So in those days, you got the Grammy. There was no TV in those days. It was just an award show. And you got your Grammy, and you got to keep it. You know, they didn't take it back and engrave it. You got it, and you had to have it engraved. They told you what to get on it. So I went to a party um, after and had the Grammy, and you know, it was great. People were drinking and having a good time and all, and everybody wants to see the Grammy. So fine, off the Grammy goes, and it goes and goes and goes. It goes around the room, whatever. And about an hour later, I get the Grammy back in two pieces. Oh. <laughs> Broken half. So it was okay. I was able to get it fixed and, and uh, do that. And I have one other little Grammy story. I had a five-year-old grandson, and he lived in Las Vegas with my oldest son. And I was going up to visit him, and he said, uh, Grandpa, when you come up, would you come to uh, school and do a show and tell, bring a Grammy and do a show and tell? I said, sure. So I get up there, and I have the Grammy, and I get to the school, the class, and it's all these little kids there, and it's all so cute. And the Grammy's there, and everybody's got the Grammy. And they're asking me, do you know Janet Jackson? Or do you know Michael Jackson? And do you know this one? And you know, and I was talking about this. And finally, the Grammy goes in the back of the room. A little kid back there says, my dad's got one of these. And I, I was really, I said, really? I said. What did he get it for? He said bowling. <laughs> so it put it right in perspective, you know? <laughs> it was really cute. <laughs> I love that story. It was it's so cute, man. My dad's got one of these. Oh, wow. God, I couldn't believe somebody up there had also had a Grammy and he got it, his dad had it for bowling. <laughs> Great. Yeah, that is beautiful. Yeah. Well, Al, you know, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. I just, I could stay here as long as you want me, you know. I know. I wish we had a Yeah, I know. Day. you got other people. <laughs> yeah. I'm anxious to see you tonight. So Absolutely. I'll be there exciting. tonight. I'm looking forward to that. Um, the first time the Tech Awards have been at the NAMM show, so I'm very excited. Yeah, yeah, I am too. I think it's just great. I'm, uh, I'm excited about it. So that is going to conclude our 2011 NAM oral history interview with Al Schmidt. As always, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks. If you have any ideas for future podcasts or potential interviewees, drop us a line at library at nam.org. Bye. Bye bye.